Turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8. If you've looked ahead, you know that this morning is a little bit of a saucy story. As you're turning to John chapter 8, verse 1, we're going to put up our key verse for the book of John. Key verse is the verse that kind of ties the whole book together. It's the theme of the entire gospel of John. It is the reason, it's the thesis for John writing this gospel. He's not writing it just to give a historical account of Jesus. He is writing it... John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, tell us why. Read it real loud with me. It says, Jesus' disciples saw him do many other miraculous signs besides the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life. Yes, we're going to talk about that life this morning. The story that we are about to read, uh, it may not be a miracle in the sense of healing or the miracles that we've seen in the past, like miraculous provision, the feeding of the 5,000, but it is a miracle of forgiveness. It's a miracle of forgiveness that wonderfully demonstrates Jesus's compassion and mercy for humanity. Are you with me so far? It is a miracle. Now, I, if you have your bulletins, you have a place for notes where you're welcome to take notes if I say something worth taking notes on. Or you can use it for drawing pictures of your neighbor. Whatever makes your socks go up and down. I titled this, that was kind of funny. You guys, tough crowd this morning. I titled this, Demonstrate Living Water. And then I was unhappy with the title, but it's kind of a clunky thing. What happened is, what I really wanted to title this was, What Rivers of Living Water Looks Like. It's way too long. Not a good title. Didn't fit on the bulletin. So we just stuck with Demonstrate Living Water. So you'll have to, you can adjust, you can title it whatever you want. You have the bulletin notes, you can change it. In the text that we covered last week, Jesus instructed the crowd in verse 38, in chapter 7, verse 38, he says, anyone who believes in me may come and drink. Remember, it's the end of the festival of shelters, and he, the, the, the priest is pouring the water out of the golden pitcher into the silver funnel onto the ground. It's this epic moment, and Jesus interrupts, anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare, and this is what is important. Rivers, the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. He's not just talking about Jesus. He's talking about the believer. The only explanation that John gives us is that Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit whenever he says rivers, plural, of living water, the Holy Spirit will flow from his heart. Who is he? The person who believes in Jesus. Okay, but how that looks, what that means is ambiguous. He doesn't really tell us what that means. I was very aware that while I, I, it, it, I think that last week's text and that message, it's, it's moving, it's emotional, it's about belief, it's about rivers of living water flowing from you and I to those around us. I mean, it's a great picture, it's a great metaphor, gets you all excited, make you want to go stand out in the river and fish. 
Hallelujah. But we don't know what that really looks like. In a practical Christian life, what does it mean for rivers of living water to flow through us? And then we come to chapter eight. Now, here's the hazard of having chapters and verses is that it gives us an unnatural break in the flow of the gospel of John, of the story of how he's building his case. So we read chapter seven and then we stop and then we come to eight. And we really shouldn't do that. I think that John follows up Jesus's teaching. I'm telling you, this is my opinion about how I think that John intended this to be put together. I think that John follows up Jesus's teaching last in the previous text about the rivers of living water flowing through the believer with this particular story. This is the illustration to demonstrate living water. Are you with me so far? Or... It demonstrates how the Holy Spirit flows through us, how the Holy Spirit throws, flows through believers, okay? I can just see the anticipation on your face. You're all like, okay, whatever, Brent, just kind of get to the text. Number one, caught in the act. Now, that's a great point. Caught in the act. Verse 1, chapter 8, here we go. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is outside of Jerusalem, just a little ways, a mile, mile, yeah, about a mile or so. Uh, it's not very far. They go out there and they spend the night often. Whenever we get to the Passover, uh, to the Passion Week, uh, you, we're going to see that Jesus and the disciples go out to the Mount of Olives uh, quite a bit. They, they go out there and, and spend the night. They go out there and pray. There's a whole bunch of things going on out at the Mount, Mount of Olives away from uh, Jerusalem. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he went back again to the temple. That's where he had made such a fuss in the previous text. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them, which would have been pretty customary. Uh, you have somebody who shows up and they begin to teach. And as they teach, other people just gather around to listen to them teach. Verse three, as Jesus was speaking, the teachers of religious law, picture who's coming up to this meeting. As Jesus was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. See, I told you this is a saucy story. Are you imagining? Crowd of people. The teachers of religious law, the Pharisees, they come in all of their pomp and circumstance and they bring this woman who has been caught in adultery and they put her up in front of the crowd and you know what's going to happen. They're going to make a spectacle. Pardon me. They're going to make a spectacle of her. The woman would have been a married woman. She would have been married. According to Jewish law, adultery had to do with unfaithfulness, with the unfaithfulness of a wife specifically. That was adultery. It was when a wife has relationships outside of her marriage. The unmarried woman would have had sexual relationships with a sexual relations with a married man not considered. I'm going to try this again. An unmarried woman, forget everything that I just said, 
An unmarried woman who had sexual relationships with a married man was not considered an adulteress. That was just fornication. She had to be the one that was married. The woman in this story was married. She was married and she went and had sexual relations with someone, not her husband. Brent, why are you belaboring this point? Because you need to understand the context of this situation. Women were viewed as property by the husband. It's a popular message, huh? In this context, in this culture, in what is going on, this woman had, who belongs to her husband, because they were viewed, women were viewed, wives were viewed as property of the husband. She had gone out and taken something that belonged to her husband and given it to somebody else. Her sin was that she allowed herself to be used by a man other than her husband. Are you tracking with me? Nothing keeps people's attention like preaching about sex. I told Diane this morning, I should have titled this Sex in the Holy Spirit. Then I would have everybody right here. It didn't seem appropriate though. In the hierarchy of sins, what this lady has done is really, really bad. She has been caught in the act of adultery. This isn't a suspicion we think that you're sneaking out at night and going and visiting some other man. No, she has been caught in the act of adultery. Of adultery. She probably was drugged from that bed directly to the temple because this is all happening early in the morning. They busted her. To stand, she, she was drugged from her, her bed to the temple to stand before this crowd of people that she may or may not know to be scrutinized, to be judged. And everybody in this crowd knows that most likely to be stoned to death because that is what the law instructed. She has messed up really bad. And now the community is going to, as they stand, as the, the teachers of religious law, the Pharisees, they stand her up in front of the crowd to tell everyone she has sinned. This is her sin. This is who she committed sin with. Now we have to pass judgment on her and we will execute her together. Now I assume that we have all been caught in the act of sin. Hopefully not this sin. We've been caught in the act of breaking the law at some point in time. I'll bet most of us have. I hate the sight of red flashing lights in my rear view mirror. <laughs> hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it. <laughs> I know, I, you know what? The minute I see those little black and white cars spin around, you know, because you know, you know, you know, the minute you saw it, you look down at the speedometer and your heart sinks. And then you look in the rearview mirror to see what's going to happen. Did I get by with it or not? He's turning around. Oh, there's the lights. You know, I am guilty. I'm guilty. I did it, but I don't want to get caught. We don't want to get caught, right? I mean, we enjoy the sin. 
Oh, don't make, don't, no, don't lie. You enjoy the sin. You hate getting caught. And I sure don't want to pay the consequences. So, so when we get caught in our act of sin, getting caught in a lie, getting caught, whatever it is, you get caught, your heart sinks. It feels miserable to get caught doing something wrong. I hate the feeling of getting caught in the act of sin. This woman was caught in the act of sin. There was no question about whether or not she was guilty. She was very guilty. Number two, judgment. Verse four, it says, teacher, they said to Jesus. I think it's curious that they call Jesus teacher when they are uh, scheming behind his back to kill him. So they call him teacher, they said to Jesus. This woman was caught in the act of adultery as she stands before the crowd and they publicly accuse her. The law of Moses, verse five, the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say, Jesus? She had sinned. She had been caught in the act of sinning. There's no question of her guilt. Although her sin was private, her sin is now made public. Now she is going to be tried in public. And according to the law of Moses, she will be stoned to death in public. That way, everyone would see how dreadfully sinful this woman was. It's not just making a spectacle out of her. This is the law. This is the, the requirement of the law. The law that had been given to Israel for their moral guidance. So that society doesn't just go awry. God had given Moses the law to give people some boundaries, some guardrails of how to live life together so that we don't kill one another. Without the law, Israel would have lived as sinful as all of the other nations. But God gave them the law to guide them towards what is right. As far back as Cain and Abel, sin must be punished. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? Adam and Eve's sons. Cain gets jealous. He kills Abel. God banishes Cain out of the Garden of Eden, actually away, just away from everybody, and he goes off on his own. God punishes sin. That's the way it is. Sin always gets punished. There is consequences for sin. God designed this whole paradigm to function that way, that when there is sin, it causes and brings death. Her sin had been proven probably by two witnesses because the law required that two witness any act of sin that they're going to charge her with. So the law is clear. The law is clear. This whole situation is abundantly clear. She must die. 
She is proven to be an adulteress. She committed this sin. We caught her in it. We know what the law is. We're not trying to figure out what we should do. We know exactly what the law requires. Now they're coming to Jesus and asking him. Verse 6, they, that would be the religious teachers and the Pharisees, they were trying to trap him. Who? Jesus. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus, are you with me? They were just trying to trap Jesus. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. Now, I love when Jesus does weird things. These teachers and of the religious law, these Pharisees, they had no concern for this woman. They were not bringing her here because they were feeling compassion. They were not bringing her here because they wanted what they did because they wanted God to be glorified. They had an agenda. They had no concern for this woman. They had brought her to Jesus for the sole purpose of getting Jesus to do or say something worthy of his own death sentence. These are really good-hearted guys, huh? She is simply a tool to serve their own anger. She meant nothing to these men. Maybe... Maybe her husband was abusive to her. Maybe he neglected her and another man paid some attention to her, so she was drawn away from her marriage. Maybe this man was, had, had forced himself on her. That's possible. Maybe she was abused as a young woman, and now sex is kind of mixed up in her mind, and she doesn't know how to behave correctly. Maybe she sinned simply out of the fact that we are born with sin in our hearts. But the fact is, we will never know. These men did not care about her. They did not care about her problem. And they sure didn't care about her story. They didn't have time for it. They had something they wanted to accomplish. And it didn't matter who they stoned in order to get to that objective. Her sin, her sin was simply a means to their objective, to accuse Jesus of some wrongdoing so that they could remain, listen carefully, her sin was a means to their objective, to accuse Jesus of some wrongdoing so that they could remain the religious elite. Twisted, isn't it? Their religious rightness was based on making sure that others, this woman and Jesus, are found guilty, even when they haven't even really done anything in the case of Jesus. Their position of spiritual authority is built upon their ability to say, you are a sinner, you must die. 
We don't like you, so we're going to search out. We're going to try to find something wrong with you. And if we can't find something wrong with you, we will trick you into doing something wrong because we want to kill you. This is our religious leaders in the story. It just is sickening how twisted the mind of the Pharisee is. I'm afraid that Christianity still has some Pharisees. But Jesus, the only person in this story who is completely sinless, he's riding in the dirt with his finger. He does not condemn this woman. He doesn't condemn the Pharisees yet. He does not argue. We have Jesus, picture this in your mind. We have Jesus, the son of God. He has been teaching. They bring the sinful woman who is just terribly sinful. And they accuse her. They ask Jesus, what do we do? And he just crouches down and starts drawing in the dirt with his finger. I just think there's this wonderful contrast in this story. It's kind of a side note where you have the teachers of religious law and all the Pharisees and they come in their, in their robes. I've told you this before. It's great to bring it up again, but the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders, they would wear their robes and when they would walk through the marketplace, they would holler out, I'm clean, I'm clean because they didn't want somebody unclean to touch them because that would make them ceremonially unclean. So they would make sure that everybody knows, I am clean, I am righteous, I am pure, and you are not. Don't touch me. So they come, and they've had their, their minions bring this woman because they wouldn't touch her. They wouldn't have anything to do with her. They don't care about her. She's a means to an end. So here they stand in all their fancy clothes and their cleanliness. And Jesus is down in the dirt, the righteous son of God. Maybe he's, maybe he's contemplating, I've got some dust and I've got some morons. Maybe I should start all over. I really try to not put myself into the text, but I'm telling you, if I was Jesus, I'd be holding some dirt and be going, <laughs> just, <laughs> you get that because he breathed life into the dust. Anyways, it doesn't matter. Number three, six, Jesus is down in the dirt. He's riding. He's just, he's just minding his own business. Mercy. I think that mercy is a concept that Christianity has totally lost the understanding of. Mercy is when... You deserve punishment, but are given a good gift instead of the punishment that you deserve. Mercy. You deserve punishment, instead you get something good. Okay, that's mercy. As opposed to grace, grace is when you're just there and God says, I'm just going to give you something good. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't do anything to not deserve it. You're just there. You just exist. And God in his grace says, you know what? I'm going to love you. I'm going to give you a beautiful day today. You don't deserve it. You don't undeserve it. You're just there and God is God and he's good. And so he's like, I'm just going to bless you. That's God's grace. 
God's mercy is you have sinned, you must die. And instead of dying, he gives us something good. That's mercy. Are you with me? Now, we seek somewhere in the middle because we're righteous in our hearts, right? We want what is good. So we seek justice. Justice is you get exactly the punishment you deserve. You follow how there's, there's three things here that are all a little bit different. Justice is you get exactly what you deserve. Mercy is instead of getting what you deserve, you got something good. And grace is you just did nothing and got something good. Our sin-filled nature, whenever I say our sin-filled nature, I mean all of us, not just me. Our sin-filled nature prefers to receive mercy. When we see those lights, the next thought through our mind is maybe he'll just write us a warning. He's going to be kind to us. Let us off. We prefer to receive mercy, but we want to give justice. How many times do we see people say, or we hear people say, I just want justice. Wow. For me, I want to receive mercy. For you, I will give you justice. I believe that the Holy Spirit, this river of living water, wants to change that in us. So watch what happens next. They kept, verse 7, they kept demanding an answer, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they kept demanding an answer of Jesus who's down on his hands and knees riding in the dirt. So he stood up again and he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Got that in your brain? Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust because he wasn't finished drawing his picture maybe. I don't know. There's lots of speculation about what Jesus wrote in the dirt, and it just does not matter. If it mattered, John would have told us, but it doesn't matter. He went back to playing in the dirt. The fact of the matter is that the eyewitnesses who were a part of this whole trial, this spontaneous trial, the eyewitnesses to this sin, they are the ones who customarily got the privilege, the privilege of throwing the first stone at the sinner. Are you understanding this mindset? I caught you. I get to stone you. That was more of a baseball, wasn't it? I bet they already had picked out rocks. They already had them in their hands and they were ready to stone this woman. Because, I mean, we, we can look into this story and we can see these, these totally twisted and immoral and corrupt-minded, black-hearted people and see ourselves. Because the fact of the matter is, human nature, it is human nature that Im immediately we are ready to pass judgment on those who are morally inferior to ourselves. We've got our cleanliness on. We've been to church. We did our soap twice this week. So we're feeling really good about ourselves. And we were reading about keeping the law. And then we see somebody and we're like, oh, sinner. Sinner, 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 sinner. Where's a rock? 
I'm going to stone you to death because your sin requires death. We see ourselves in these people who are ready to stone the adulterous woman. Jesus says, sure, go ahead and stone her. Fulfill the law. Are you listening to me? Go ahead and stone her. Fulfill the law. That is the law that you were given. So go ahead and fulfill the law of God. However, for integrity's sake, let's allow those who have never committed any sin worthy of being stoned to carry out this punishment on this woman. Because it only makes sense. It's extremely logical. It's extremely right. It only makes sense that the one, that one who has sinned should not be carrying out the judgment of another who has sinned. Does that make sense? If, I'm, if I have sinned, I should not be carrying out the judgment, executing the judgment on you for your sin. Let the one who is sinless carry out that judgment. And for whatever reason, that resonated with the whole crowd because the crowd froze. They were all ready to throw their stones and then Jesus says, let the one with no sin cast the first stone. No one there could in, in any conscience at all carry out the law. Seconds before, they are here to say, Jesus, this is the law. What are you gonna do? And he says, go ahead, carry out the law. If you're sinless, go ahead and execute the judgment. If you're not sinless, you need to shut up. That's what the message says, right, Larry? Pretty close. This is why we send the kids in the other room, because they learn words they're not supposed to say. This woman had sinned against her husband. This woman had sinned against her family. We understand the chaos that sin brings into relationships in our lives. This is no light thing. I'm not making light of it. Jesus is not making light of it, I assure you. This woman has sinned against her husband. She sinned against her family. She sinned against her nation. She has sinned against her God. Yet no one, no one was in the moral, morally superior position to drag her out of the city and stone her to death. Well, there, there was one person. There was one person who was in the morally superior position to pass judgment. There was one person who was worthy of stoning this woman, but he was busy playing in the dirt. Yeah. He had no interest in condemning this woman, where the rest of the crowd, that was their only interest condemn this woman. She sinned. We want justice. Verse 9. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one. I like that. I like that. One by one. That means that they kind of put their head down and they were hoping nobody was looking and then they went. Mm -hmm. Had their tail between their legs for sure. Where are we at? One by one. Beginning with the oldest. Okay, so they, 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 it was more like that to be more biblically correct. <laughs> 
until Jesus only was left in the middle of the crowd. So all the accusers left, he's in the middle of the crowd with this woman. So the crowd is still there. Often when we see this depicted by Hollywood or whoever, we see just Jesus and this woman. But the fact of the matter is the accusers are who left. The crowd is still standing around going, what's gonna happen next? (laughs) It's kind of fun. Verse 10, then Jesus stood up again and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Because there had to have been two witnesses. Are they not even around to condemn you anymore? I'm reading my notes and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, where are your accusers? Uh, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? A long time ago, whenever I lived in Bloomfield, I uh, was dating Diane. I'm going to make a short story long. Yep. Uh, I was dating Diane, and my house was here, her house was here, and here was the police department. Okay, so there's lots of driving back and forth. And so I got tickets for speeding, for seatbelts, just everything in the world, just because they just saw me, and they're like, hey, there's Brent. Let's pull him over. He's doing something wrong. We know it. Uh, so I, I think it was a seatbelt ticket. I don't really remember, but the judge was in my Sunday school class at church. And so I went in to, to pay the ticket and I really was hoping to get out of it because that's what we do, right? I want mercy, you get justice. I want mercy. So I went in to beg for mercy and the clerk there at the lady, this nice at the desk, she a very nice older lady. She looked me straight in the eye and she said, the judge is busy, you're just gonna have to pay for it. <laughs> Pharisee. So, The judge's door is open. So I lean back and I say, hey, judge, whatever his name was. And uh, he's like, hey, Brent, come on in. Well, he he was meeting with two police officers. He was gonna interrupt his time with them. They were talking about something important, I'm sure. He was going to interrupt their time with, his time with them to see me. And so I go be bopping down. I'm like, hey, judge, how are you doing? And good, why are you in here? I'm like, man, I said, uh, this guy here gave me a ticket for not wearing my seatbelt. My accuser's right here. And now I'm feeling really bad because what am I going to say? I didn't do it. I did, and he knows I did it. I can't even lie. I mean, I'm trapped. Because I'm guilty, I'm trapped. (laughs) And the judge defers it. He, in front of my accuser, he deferred it. And that's, I I love that judge. Till the day he died, he had a special place in my heart. Because he offered me mercy. I think that in this story, the oldest people left first because as we get older, we understand more quickly how profound Jesus's response was in this situation. Not one in the crowd was without sin. And they knew it. As they stood there as a group of accusers, they, they first thought, well, I know I'm not innocent and I sure know he's, he's not innocent. I was with him last week. It was no way. He's, if he throws a stone, I'm gonna throw a stone at him. <laughs> and this guy over here, We all know his sins. So then what about the law? What about the law? God had given the law, and we are to keep the law. 
So is it in this story, is the law unkept by Jesus? Did Jesus just ignore God's law? Let me point you to another scripture. You can write down the reference. You can look at it later because I'm going to go through two verses kind of quickly. Matthew 5, 17. You need to write that down. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus tells us, don't misunderstand why I have come. Oh, that means, hey, potential for you to misunderstand. So don't misunderstand. He says, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to fulfill them, not to get rid of them, to fulfill them, to make them complete, to answer the question that humanity and the law together have not been able to answer. Jesus is here to bring resolution. So can Jesus just dismiss this woman and forgive her of the sin that she was caught in? Can he just say, ah, nah, no big deal. No worries. Don't, don't, you know what? Just don't worry about it. No big deal. In Hebrews 9.22, fantastic passage of scripture. He says, Hebrews 9.22, in fact, we can say that according to the law of Moses, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with the sprink, by sprinkling with blood. Blood. Then he goes on and he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. I just created two thoughts. We're going to pull them together now. For this woman to be forgiven, there must be the shedding of blood. Are you with me? Is Jesus just dismissing her? Hang on, hang on. The religious leaders and the Pharisees, they were not willing to die in this woman's place. Not one of them said, you know what? She seems like a nice young lady. She's got life ahead of her. She has a husband. She has kids. I'm old. Let me stand in. You stone me. Send her home. Forgive her. Not one of those guys offered it. Not that they could because they were not morally qualified to shed their own blood because they had their own sins. They could only die for their own sins. So if they were stoned, they were stoned for their sins, not for her sins. Jesus... Jesus is the only one who has the moral superiority, the purity, and the willingness to die and shed his sinless blood for the forgiveness of this filthy woman. Only Jesus. Not the religious leaders, not anybody in the crowd, only Jesus. Only Jesus, because he's the son of God, has the power, has the position, has the authority and the willingness to offer this woman life. Her life is over. She has sinned under the law of Moses. She must die. So for all practical purposes, she's dead. And Jesus comes along as the son of God and he says, I can give you life. You deserve death. You are worthy of death. You are worthy to be drugged by your hair out of the city, out of the temple, out into the pasture and stoned until you're dead. 
but I am going to give you life. And we know that Jesus is offering not just life now, he's offering eternal life. That, that, have you got your brain around that? That is mercy. That's mercy. Ah, that's mercy. The son of God says, you are guilty, but I will pay your debt so that you may live. Jesus says, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No one is left to condemn the sinful woman. I put that in my side notes because it's kind of a side thought because we often think, oh, I sin and everybody's paying attention to me now. No, in this story, Jesus says, I've got this. Where are your accusers? There's no accusers. No accusers in the story. Just a crowd who's watching to see what this man Jesus is going to do. There's anticipation about a miracle fixing to happen. So we're watching. We're not thinking about the sin of this woman. We're not thinking about this woman anymore. Our eyes are fixed on Jesus because something eternal, something miraculous, something fantastic is about to happen. Verse 8. Sorry, we're in chapter 8, verse 11. She says, so the question on the table is, Jesus says, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Where's the two eyewitnesses? And she says, no, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Are you picturing this? This is a fantastic, this is intense, you guys. Y'all are way too relaxed. Jesus has all of the moral authority to stone this woman to death. He is the one who has the right to stone her, but he doesn't. Instead, instead of stoning this woman who is guilty of sin, instead, Jesus will be whipped. Jesus will be beaten. Jesus will be hung on a cross where he will die. There is shedding of blood for this woman's sin. It's not hers. It's Jesus's. The law is fulfilled. When there's sin, there has to be the shedding of blood for forgiveness. There has to be. That's the economy that God set up. And then when we sin, I'm getting ahead of myself. When we sin, Jesus says, go and sin no more. I'm going to take care of your debt here. And he goes to the cross for you and I. His blood is shed instead of ours. The law is <laughs> it's fulfilled. It's not abolished. It's fulfilled. Not by the blood of a sinner, but by the eternal blood. By the eternal life-giving blood of Jesus. Jesus gave Mercy. Can you get that in your head? Jesus gave mercy. Now, Lord help us. Last week, Jesus instructed the crowd in verse 38, chapter 7. He says, anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water, rivers of living water, the Holy Spirit, will flow from his heart. He was speaking about the Holy Spirit whenever he says rivers of living water. And then John tells the story of what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to flow like rivers of living water through a believer. 
That's what the picture is. That's the illustration. It was not the teachers and the Pharisees who demanded justice that demonstrates the Holy Spirit flowing. Are you with me? I mean, we are so good, so good to demand justice, to point out what is wrong and demand the penalty for sin to be paid. We're so good at being Pharisees. It's in our sinful heart to be a Pharisee. But for those who put their faith in Jesus and are transformed by the Holy Spirit, rivers of living water will flow through us and it's demonstrated in Jesus standing with the adulterous woman and he says, instead of you dying for your sin, I'll die for your sin. It was Jesus who gave mercy at his own expense. I'll be a Christian as long as it doesn't cost me. I'll be a follower of Christ as long as it doesn't, doesn't mean that I have to uh, give up something that really belongs to me. Are you with me? Jesus gave mercy at his own expense. Like the Pharisees, we do not hold, we are like the Pharisees, we do not hold the moral high ground to stand in judgment of other sinners. In fact, you and I are most like the adulteress, the sinful woman in this story. In the event you came for a little encouragement this morning. <laughs> yeah, we are most like the adulterous woman. You and I are most like the sinner. But because mercy has been extended to us and our sins have been forgiven, we have, because we're believers, we have this unearthly opportunity to extend mercy to those in our lives who do not deserve it. It may even cost us to show mercy. We had a, I'm going to tell you an, an ambiguous story to make kind of a point. An event happened in my neighborhood. Uh, the police were called. The Hedens were innocent. We were. The sheriff even said so. And then later, one of our neighbors said, you need to take responsibility for this financially. And so I did. Wrote a check, said, hey, we can keep the peace in the neighborhood. My son calls me. He's like, why did you do that? We were in the right we did nothing wrong. We owed them nothing. And he said this, and this is why it stuck in my mind. He said, Dad, it's the principle of it. I'm like, yes, 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 you're right. It is the principle of it. That money means nothing to us. And showing mercy means everything. Did we deserve to be mistreated? No. So we showed kindness back looking for an opportunity. Instead, instead of looking for what's wrong in people, as believers in Christ who are filled with the Holy Spirit and Jesus says that we will have rivers of life-giving water flowing from our hearts, instead of looking for what's wrong in people, maybe we should be looking for opportunities to give mercy to people because that's what Jesus did. Now, I know because I was raised in church and so I would like for this rivers of living water to look more like 
you know, if the Holy Spirit's going to flow through me, I would like to be able to lay hands on people and then be miraculously healed. That would be cool. I would love to pray for provision and God just back up a dump truck of blessings. That would just be so fun. I would like to walk on water, by the way. But no, no, it's not that. The most you and I will ever demonstrate that life-giving rivers of water in our lives. Are you listening to me? You can forget everything else I said. Get this. As believers, the most we ever demonstrate those rivers of living water flowing from our hearts is when those who sin against us see Christ's mercy given to them. That glorifies God. Now, some of you are still holding on to that last phrase that Jesus says, go and sin no more. Engage with me for another two minutes and then I will let, I will let God's people go. We have to be very careful that we do not fall into the attitude of the Pharisees here. That we are more moral and therefore have the responsibility of pointing out and condemning others' sins. Condemnation is not a motivation for living a God-honoring life. We see that. We see that through the whole Old Testament. God gives them the law, says, if you break the law, I'm going to kill you. Does it keep them from breaking the law? No. The Pharisees come and they say, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, and they kill people. It doesn't keep people from sinning because it's in our hearts. It's part of who we are, that sinful nature. And we don't just wake up and say, I'm just going to stop sinning. It doesn't work that way. John chapter 3. What I do believe is that an encounter with Jesus is, in capital letters, transforming. Have you got that? This isn't come to shake Jesus' hand and now I'm going to be a good person. No, 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 no. Whenever the Son of God, the creator of heavens and earth, God himself offers you mercy and says, I'm going to pay for your penalty for sin, changes something in your heart. A little bit of that death dies away. We're transformed. This woman needed healing in her soul. She didn't need to stop sinning. She needed a soul healing. It's probably why she sinned. And she found that healing in Jesus. In Jesus, not in behavioral modification. She found it in Jesus. And when Jesus has healed a person, healed a person, when the Holy Spirit has transformed them and regenerated them, John chapter 3. When they've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, when rivers of this life-giving water, the Holy Spirit, begin to flow from their heart, then that sin-filled behavior begins to wash away. You got it? If you think you're going to change yourself, you're wrong. If you think that you're going to change somebody else, you're an absolute fool. If you think you can come to Jesus and be transformed, you got it. You got it. Jesus changes us. 
He changes our heart. He changes our desires. He changes our motivation. So even when we do sin, we say, Lord, thank you for your mercy, and I don't want to do that again. I really don't want to do that again. I want to live in a way that honors you because you've given me this beautiful gift of salvation because you're a merciful and graceful and loving God. And I don't deserve, I don't deserve to stand here now. And so I'm sorry for sinning against you. Jesus is life transforming. Instead of seeking mercy for ourselves and justice for others, we seek the mercy and the righteousness of Jesus for all of us. As believers, we get to live in Jesus's mercy. As believers, we get to demonstrate rivers of living water by offering mercy to those around us, by offering mercy. So give to those who owe you. There's no amens there. It's a great sermon. Got to the application. They're like, man, no. <laughs> Give to those who owe you. Help the person who never helps you. Bless those who curse you. Be a life giver to the person who deserves death. Then Jesus is lifted up. And he will be glorified in our lives. And he will transform. He will transform the lives of those around us who put their faith in Jesus. We point people to Jesus by the mercy that we show them. We say every morning, Desert Heights exists, every Sunday morning, we say Desert Heights exists to reach people with the life-giving message of Jesus. That's good. How are we going to do that? We're gonna do that by offering mercy to those who do not deserve it. Let's stand together and bow our heads. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus. Lord, we stand here completely humbled by your mercy. While we are completely found guilty of sin, you have gone to the cross, you shed your blood, the law is fulfilled. And you've given us life when we deserve death. Lord, do not let us move away from that. Let us hold on to that every moment of our lives as we interact with those that don't have a faith with you. Lord, help us to be able to show that same mercy, that same gift of mercy to those who offend us or those that sin against us. Help us to give all that we have to bless them, to show them mercy, to show them your grace, your love so that they will see your son, Jesus Christ, and they will come to know you. They will believe in you. They'll be transformed by you. Father, our, our trust is completely in you. Work in us and through us. And Lord, I pray, I pray for our church. Let us be rivers of life-giving water to this community. Be glorified and be praised. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.